This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. I'm Chanae Ogwumike. I'm Lisa Leslie, and we're very excited to tell you about our new podcast with Blue Wire, front and center. Lisa and I are breaking down what's going on in our lives, in the world, and keeping it 100. We're also learning from amazing guests as well, like Emmanuel Acho. People that show love to me, I forever got their back. Vivica A. Fox. If the foundation isn't right, then the rest of it's going to go wrong from there. And more. Subscribe to Front and Center today. Hi, flamethrowers. Amira here, and this is a burn it all down hot take. This weekend, Saturday, November 7th, Penn State and Maryland will meet on the pandemic football field, pitting coach James Franklin and coach Mike Loxley together um, in competition with each other. Now, coach Franklin and coach Loxley are two of the four black college coaches at uh, in the Big Ten and only two of 14 in the entire FBS, which has like 130 schools. Um, And so I thought that this was a perfect opportunity to talk about black college football coaches. And I know no better person to do that with than my good brother, Derek White. To delve more into this topic, I had I had to hit up the homie Derek White, who is a professor of history and African-American and Africana studies at University of Kentucky, author of many books, most recently Blood, Sweat and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M and the History of Black College Football, and also, of course, the co-host of the Black Athlete Podcast with Lou Moore. Uh, Derek, welcome to Burn It All Down. Thank you. This is like a crossover event on uh, network television where all the podcasts come together. (laughs) Supergirl and The Flash and The Arrow all show up on the same show. This is it. This is it. So I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yes, yes. I'm I'm really excited to have the conversation. And so, you know, in the midst of (laughs) the hell of the last week, right? Uh, it almost kind of slipped my mind that, you know, first of all, pandemic football is really not on my mind, but because they're insisting on playing games, apparently there is a game coming up uh, uh, this weekend with uh, Penn State and Maryland um, that is going to feature James Franklin, you know, uh, and Mike Loxley as two of some of the only black coaches that we have in the FBS, right? And they'll meeting. And so, of course, given your expertise on on football and college football on black college football on, on black coaches, and also, of course, because you're a Terp, I had to call you up to have a chit chat about this matchup and use it as a springboard to talk through um, some of some of the stuff around black college football coaches, right? And so partially, you know, what I wanted to start with is asking you when you think about this matchup of what it means for the two of them to come together and coach on these pandemic as sidelines um, this weekend, when you look at two, two of the only black coaches, you know, coaching the FBS 
uh, meeting in in the Big Ten doing this, what were what are your first thoughts that come to mind when you see these brothers coaching? Uh, I feel like a black coach is going to get a win this week. Um, uh, week one was terrible in the Big Ten. I'm just going to say this. It was uh, four black coaches in the Big Ten. Uh, Mike Loxley at Maryland, James Franklin at Penn State, uh, Mel Tucker at Michigan State, uh, and Lovey Smith at University of Illinois. And they all lost the first week. And I was like, oh, this is not the way we should start pandemic Big Ten football. Um, I was like, James Franklin, you, you gotta you gotta win one for the for the, the Black Coaches Association, uh, especially you know. And this is true for me, thinking about the kinds of criticism that um, uh, that Warren got as the the head of the Big Ten when he chose to postpone. And I think that that was often very racialized, um, uh, as you know, Nebraska let them play and lawsuits and. Um, it, it, it looked, it was ugly all the way around, but I think as us who, who study race and racism in sports, it had a kind of racial tinge to it that, that left me very uncomfortable. And so these coaches who are, uh, you know, who were, I think were very quiet during that period. They were not the vocal leaders of coaches talking about we must play uh, as we saw at Nebraska and a little bit at Ohio State and others. And so they were very quiet. I thought that that was a kind of uh, a, a version of solid, uh, solidarity that I think kind of went unaddressed. Um, but, you know, I know that the game in the Big Ten is about wins and losses, and they lost all week one. So this week we know uh, somebody's going to get a win. Um, uh, Penn State needs a win. Uh, Mike, Loxley, Mike Loxley's got a win. This is rare that I could come on a podcast and talk about a Maryland-Penn State uh, matchup where Maryland has the better record. <laughs> but I'm gonna take it. Then we should. I'm glad this is being recorded for posterity because right, it right. happens too often. Um, but yeah, no, I think the pandemic football. This is a big weekend, and I think this is an important weekend in part because, at least from the side of, of Mike Loxley, um, that he had taken this summer in the aftermath of George Floyd to really push this idea that uh, his players were going to be community oriented. Uh, and talking about uh, the D Washington DC and the uh, Prince George's County area where Prince George's County is where the University of Maryland is. And it's only about, you know, six miles from the DC uh, uh, line. And they have used this as an opportunity to talk about voting and education and to talk about the ways that they can use their platform to further and better their communities. Now they did not go as far as the Pac-12 and asking for you know payment this summer and these kinds of things. But Mike Loxley really did encourage his guys, and some of this is it comes in the aftermath, obviously, that uh, Jordan McNair had died uh, two years ago, tragically died uh, at, during a practice under the previous regime. And I just feel like he is always being in tune. He's a, he's a DC guy. He worked at Maryland for on and off for the last 20 years. Uh, and so I think that he really understood the, the role that he could play. And I think I was very proud as a, as a Terp that he had done this. Um, and then at the local level, and then at the second level, he was like, I'm announcing this, this Black Coaches Association, which had fallen out of favor. There used to be the Fritz Pollard Association that had basically gone under. And Mike Loxley has now created a new version about improving the pipeline uh, for coaches. And I think that for a guy who's only won like seven games as a head coach, to be perfectly honest, um, he's doing a lot. And I'm pretty proud of, of what he's taken on so far. 
Yeah, no, I think that it's so interesting. So, you know, I can say it was very interesting to watch, you know, how James Franklin was doing some of this work and the Black college football players here at Penn State. Um, So, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. We're not in PG, you know, we're not, there's not like a city that they can kind of go into and help, but that doesn't mean there's not racism, right? And of course, one of the big things that is happening and has happened here um, is that State College Police Department shot and killed um, a young man, Hosazi, uh, about a year and a half ago. First time in like a hundred years that State College PD killed somebody. And wow. despite being like no percent of the population here, they still found a black man in a mental health crisis to kill, right? And so out of that has formed the 320 Coalition on the day that he um, was murdered. And what we saw over the summer is a number of athletes led by Olivia Jack, who's a swimmer here, but also with many members of the football team get involved. Um, we saw, you know, basketball players, uh, swimmers, track and field leading protests here, speaking out about this. They formed a, a black college um, athlete coalition here at Penn state. And then of course the big 10 has their own mm-hmm. acronym for whatever they formed. Right. Um, and, and James Franklin, of course, has said all the right things and endorsed that. But the other part of what you said when you're talking about the tragic death of Jordan McNair is it, it you know, I even had this question about pandemic football in the first place. Like, you know, it's so hard to even watch them take the field, right? You know, I, I've had students like Micah opted out of the season, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just so difficult when you feel like, they shouldn't be playing. But I think to your point, you know, point that you you mentioned to me earlier is like the coaches in the ecosystem of college football, some have a lot of power, right? And yeah. some have power that's constrained. So that was one of the things that I wanted to speak to. But also that second point that I wanted to tee up for you when thinking about, you know, um, Loxley coming into this position after DJ Durkin and, and James coming into to Penn State after their hoist of scandals is that they're both coming into institutions that are rebuilding rebuilding not only the program, but are also doing a public relations rebuild, right? They're also just like trying to, they're harmful institutions. And so you're already kind of slotted in to a place of harm and then trying to do good in it. And so it seems to me that both of these things together thinking about the needing to get back on the field for pandemic football and the Big Ten and the way that the Big Ten especially got politicized towards the end of this presidential election, but mm-hmm. also the fact that the, both of them are coaching within institutions that have been harmful and that they're kind of the solve for that. They're supposed to be the balm. Strikes me as an incredibly hard position to occupy for both of these men. You know, I, I say this all the time that if you want to see an opportunity for a black coach to get an opportunity, especially in college football, they it will be one of the extreme. There are kind of two trajectories now. For a long time, there was only one. One was that we were so bad that we could hire a black coach. This is how Denny Green gets the job at Northwestern, for instance, right? Like many, many years, you know, decades ago is that Northwestern was terrible. And so like, we're so terrible, right? Well, let's take a chance on a black coach. We get some positive publicity. Maybe he can recruit. 
Um, now we've got these two different cycles where you get uh, every, you know, every coach gets a start at a bad program with the exception of Ryan Day at Ohio State who just takes over a juggernaut um, or, or Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma. Like that, those are few and far between. Most people's first job is at a losing program. But black coaches are often tasked with this additional public relations job that the program has come off some particular kind of scandal. So not only did they lose games on the field, but something has happened usually off the field that has allowed for uh, the board of trustees or the boosters or uh, the administration, the athletic administration to say like, you know, how do we, what, what's a quick fix? Let's hire a black person, a black coach, and that'll give us a little positive publicity. And hopefully this negative thing that's happened will go away. In the Big Ten, this is of course, I think particularly true, right? Where Lockley's coming in after the tragic death of Jordan McNair. Um, um, uh, James Franklin is coming in on the aftermath as, a, as the second coach, I believe, after the Sandusky scandal, uh, as well as still being on probation when he starts. Um, and then you have um, uh, Mel Tucker taking over this year at Michigan State after the scandal that uh, the you know the scandal with the trainer that that really captured their entire athletic department and and Mike D'Antoni uh, gets uh, gets caught up in that um, and so I think that there's a situation that these three coaches of the four are all coming in on a particular kind of heightened scandal uh, and I think that that's you know they are tasked with a really difficult uh, balancing position. I think James Franklin um, is the apex of this because Penn State has such tradition. Joe Paterno is an icon and an institution uh, and, uh, and, and in the Sandusky scandal, you know, it was like, it, you know, it fell upon Joe Pa's legacy as well as if he, you know, so this is the kind of, all these are happening. Uh, and I'll just be perfectly honest. I don't think Penn State hires a black coach without that scandal. Right. Like, I just Absolutely. don't think I don't think that that's even in the realm of possibility. I don't think the boosters and the powers that be allow for that to come. I mean, I know Jim O'Brien was the immediate aftermath of that coach, but I think that this is that that possibility and, and James Franklin's success at Vandy create a kind of perfect but, storm. Yeah. But the other thing it. that did, if we could just like, you know, let's talk about colorism. But the yeah. other thing, right, is that I don't think. I don't think if James Franklin looked like Mike Loxley that he would also be hired as this coach, right? Because like, I remember very, very vividly when we won Big Tens, I, I don't know, four years, whenever it was. I, I had just got to Penn State, like maybe the first year or two I was here. And I remember they put the scrolling kind of Chiron under it and said, you know, James Franklin has become the first black coach to do this. And there was a number of people, <laughs> boosters, people in the community who were like, he's black, right? Like maybe <laughs> you missed his daughters maybe you missed his wife like maybe you thought that it was just Fumi that made you know the girls look like that but this this like way that he's like a PA boy you know and he's like racially ambiguous but like light enough that he could slide in to, it didn't quite feel like a complete 180 from Joe Pa, right you know I mean anything was going to be a departure Bill O'Brien was a departure like you said but with that buffer and because he's he's a light-skinned dude like i think that there was more possibilities um than than I, otherwise i don't see it happening well i think this gets into the broader i mean i think one of the things that we see in all kinds of sports right the assumption that black bodies black athletic bodies are talented athletically but but uh weak mentally this is a long-standing stereotype and that has plagued 
players and coaches for decades. And so one of the reasons that I, I was so interested in historically black college football is that and focusing on coaches is because that was a space where we could see coaching genius, uh, uh, you know, uh, blossom without the kind of strains of, of kind of white assumptions, right? So you get to see, you know, Eddie Robinson and Jake Gaither and John Merritt and all these great coaches who were cast of characters who were very different, some of whom didn't like each other, who are all shapes, sizes and colors and philosophies and politics kind of come together in this milieu that was HBCU football. We don't see that on the, uh, we don't see that on um, in the PWI world. And I think James Franklin I think his, the colorism works for him because it gives him the benefit of the doubt. He is, he was at Maryland as an, as a, as a wide receiver coach. I've been, a, I, I'm a 97 graduate. And so I've been a fan for a long time. Uh, and, and James Franklin was a uh, wide receivers coach. And then he had worked his way up to, to offensive coordinator to Ralph Friedgen, uh and was the coach in waiting at one point at Maryland. Uh, and uh, and then Ralph Regan got fired, uh, and along with James Franklin, gets we severed all those relationships, uh, and both went on their way. Uh, and Franklin ends up at Vanderbilt, and then you know the rest is kind of history. And so he has a certain kind of animosity, I think, to Maryland as an institution because it felt like it did him wrong. Right. Um, right. Uh, and I think he let us know as he beat us like a drum last year in College Park. <laughs> uh, it's was, it was painful. It's painful. Um, but I think that there's something about this thing. And I think Loxley is an interesting kind of counterweight to that, that they have very similar trajectories. They're on the same staff uh, in the early 2000s at Maryland. Uh, Loxley gets passed over for the offensive coordinator position and Franklin kind of gets tapped, right? And so there's this, there's a kind of, I've said this all the time that a lot of times in, in coaches uh, hierarchy, there can only be one kind of lead black assistant. Right. There can only be an, one. You can either have an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator. We can't have both. Uh, one of those guys can be black. And so because they both worked on the offensive side of the ball, there could only be one. And James Franklin, for a number of reasons, gets tapped. Um, Loxley leaves because um, he didn't get the opportunity. He goes to Florida and literally wins a national championship, recruiting all those guys that Urban Meyer, uh, most famously he, under Ron Zook, he's this, the offensive coordinator as well as the recruiting coordinator and Ron Zook recruited all that talent that Urban Meyer walks in the door and wins a national title with and so uh, you know so Loxley has this reputation as a great recruiter uh, he's with Ron Zook at Florida uh, and he's at Ron Zook at Illinois uh, he comes back to Maryland eventually and I think that what was disappointing as a fan is to watch that same kind of argument happen that James Franklin gets this chance at both at Vanderbilt and at um, at Penn State and Loxley was in line to get the job when Randy Edsel got fired. He coached as the interim coach for the last couple of games of a terrible season. Uh, the kids played better. I watched those games. I'm one of like six people who watched them. Um, they played better for him. They were, um, you know, we didn't win, but they played, they played well. Um, and I felt like then like Loxley's the only guy who can win that, who can win you know, recruit well enough to give us a fighting chance. Uh, they chose to get uh, DJ Durkin, who had no experience. Again, a guy who had less experience than Loxley, but had, you know, was white and seen as a defensive genius. And we saw how that turned out. They like literally imploded our program. Uh, a player dies under his watch. And, and the only way that we can even try to save football, <laughs> honestly, is to hire Loxley. 
And I think that that's to me. And I think that one of the things that I like about his national coalition of minority football coaches is that he's trying to create a way that other coaches don't have to get into this dire situation so that they can learn, you know, to get this role. And I think that, you know, I, I think that there's colorism. I think that, you know, the way the intricate behind the scenes networks in which coaches are tapped and not tapped, the way black coaches are expected to only recruit and coach position groups that don't have any, um, uh, you know, they don't call plays and things of that nature, that both of these men work their way up to the head coaching position, being offensive coordinators uh, and then eventually head coaches. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that you point to, even like that last point, we can expand beyond football. It's like part of that burden of being the only sometimes is that you have to push out the only others, right? You have to, you know, do this kind of jockeying of position. If there can only be one top black offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator at a given time, who are you muscling out? Who are you bodying? Because you need to claim that space. And then how does that make it harder when you're the coach to turn around and build the pipeline, right? And sometimes I think even the framework of this conversation is like, okay, they're meeting and they're two of 14 and they're, this is a tight fraternity, but it's like, how tight can it be if you have to claw, you know, your way? Like sometimes I think there's a way that we, we don't understand the lingering effects of like white supremacist structure. Right. Mm -hmm. And if the strut and this is beyond football, because I think this is something that even in the academy, we can talk about unlearning or journalism or whatever, wherever field you want to bring it to where, and, you know, I think about this a lot is like, we have been told over and over and over that the value and the novelty in, in our scholarship or, or even our very existence as black scholars is because like, we're the one. Yes. And I think so often that's why when you have that panicky moment when you're a grad student and you realize somebody else has written on your topic, you're like, oh no, like this is a problem. Now you, I have my eye on you. Da, da, da. And it's like, you ever stop to think how many books have been written about Abraham Lincoln, right? And you don't have to do that same kind of justification. And I think that that is part of what I see here is like, or like so many of us have to kind of unlearn or stop and realize that that those are the hidden burdens of white supremacy that sometimes we don't even realize is sitting on us is that we can't always have this kind of space, collective space where we're welcoming. And mm -hmm. we can say like, how can we build together because you're jockeying for to climb that ladder and you've only been given one route. And so I think about that a lot in, in that example that you just gave and why I'm, you know, like you really impressed with um, what Loxley started, right, with, with the uh, Minority Football coach, uh, Coaching Coalition, because I think that that's part of that work. Like that's, that's that path, that's that pipeline that's so essential to lay down. I'll say this too for Lox, and I'm a homer, so just take this with a grain of salt, <laughs> right? Like, I think the one thing that I've appreciated about Lox as a fan, like not knowing Loxley is that he hired, you know, multiple black assistant coaches. And one of the things like this has never gotten any kind of, I think, uh, enough attention for people who, you know, sports writers. And so I'm given, I don't have time to write this. So if they listen to this fantastic pod, please take this up. But one of the things that he did was in, in creating and de developing his staff at Maryland, he hired Scotty Montgomery as the offensive coordinator who was uh, fired as the head football coach at East Carolina. He has Joker Phillips, who was the former head football coach at the University of Kentucky, where I now work. 
Uh, and so he's got these former head coaches on black head coaches on his staff as position coaches, as coordinators, all up and down the, the, the position as his assistants. And I think that to me, that is a very valuable piece for him in developing like, not just how do we run the program or how do we, you know, what do we do in preparation for this individual game? But those three men in particular, all know the burden of being the black head coach, right? And what yeah. failure can possibly mean. And I think that that's, and, and so I think there's a lot of risk, right? There's a risk that you're creating, you know, people who can replace you, like, you know, your AD, like, oh, um, Loxley, you're not getting it done. Like, well, maybe that other guy in the locker room can do it him better than you if we want to keep, you know, so we avoid this controversy. And so I'm actually, a, actually a pretty appreciative of that as a way, as a kind of early signal for this national uh, coalition of minority football coaches, that that's something he also delved into in his roster. And James Franklin, too, has a very diverse diverse roster. I think his defensive coordinator is Larry Johnson still there. Is Larry Johnson still there? I D think coordinator? so. And so, so that's an old holdover. He, Larry Johnson has been there for the deal uh, forever. They've had several other coaches. Um, and so it'll be interesting to, you know, I think they, they do both have very diverse uh, staffs that I think is an important thing to point out. But I also know that, um, that Loxley has these former head coaches, black head coaches, which is an unusual thing um, with both Joker Phillips and Scotty Montgomery. Absolutely. And so the last thing I ask you is <laughs> probably not a fair question. It's not a fair question. Not probably. Um, it's so hard. You know, when, when people have these conversations about like Kaepernick, right. And they're like, the goal would be getting him back in the league. And it's like, for me, it's like, that can't be the goal if we know how destructive the league is. Right. Like we know that they're not paying well, that we know they're not protecting players. We know they're not giving good health care. We know that they're not giving a damn about CTE. That can't be the mountaintop, right? Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think that this is really hard for me in college football too. I feel this about the students that I that I teach that also play because I want what's best for them and I cheer for them and I, and I love to see them shine. And also like I, they're in a system that I find really morally repugnant, um, you know, a great deal of the time. And also I like sports. So like, of course I enjoy the games. But it's been so hard this year to watch pandemic football. Like I barely, I looked up, you know, just not even getting to the product on the actual field. Like the games have not also been good, right? But I mean, like compelling, of course, but not, we haven't been playing well. But then like the other day, I flipped on the last like, you know, maybe 10 minutes of the Ohio State game to see Jahan's great, great catches down the stretch, right? And my, my seven-year-old, or is he eight, whatever, my middle child said, can you explain, um, he, he calls the pandemic an environment, but he mm -hmm. goes, can you explain environment football to me? And I'm like, yeah, what you want to know? Like, da -da -da -da, X's and O's. And he was like, how are they playing in the environment? Because they're not six feet apart. Mm. And I was like, yeah and he was like so does the environment not apply to that and I'm not even being one of those people who like post like their kids being brilliant on Twitter like for likes or whatever but like literally like I could not answer him like I no, actually I, had no response I said I couldn't tell you that's a great question Jackson I cannot tell you and that's part of I think what's so hard about this season is I'm watching you know the coaches that we're talking about in the system the players especially which is always where my heart is going to lie playing pandemic football and I think about this I wrestle with this all the time the same thing is when we had this conversation about Dion taking over at Jackson State is like 
we sit and we like that murkiness, that complication. You're a historian like I am where we really like that kind of mess. And I really think of this as one of these messy situations where it's like, how do we think about pathways to the sideline to diversify that and do that and also understand that that sideline is still exclaimed into an institution that is so harmful um, for multiple reasons and that coaches especially college coaches tend to be super paternalistic and about power and control and how can you keep your team playing hard and unpaid and all of these things and how do we hold all of these things together and so I've always wanted to ask you like as somebody right who who studies black college football and, and studies black coaches and is looking at this, how do we hold these kind of messy, inconvenient truths together where at one time we want to expand this representation, this, you know, do it. And on the other hand, is that expansion, is, is diversifying the, the sideline in that in and of itself going to disrupt some of these other mechanisms of harm within these systems that they occupy? So I actually think I've been, I think about this all the time because I think, you know, I think I get this question from my work a lot of times is framed, um, you know, should the, these elite athletes in basketball and football, should they come back to HBCUs? And I'm like, you know, the HBCUs are in the same system as the PWIs, right? Like the, I think they get something that happens outside of the football office differently than they get at PWIs, but the actual football question of, paternalism and and coaching and all that stuff is real x's and o's. a lot of that stuff is the same kind of logic and the same kind of structure um i think that there's two things i think that you know one of the things that we never ask college football coaches anymore is should players get paid and most of the time college football coaches punt on this question and i have a tremendous amount of respect for the you know handful of coaches who have been brutally honest about this situation. I remember, uh, this is over a decade ago, when Steve Spurrier, who's not always known as the most racially kind of forthright person, said, right. <laughs> they asked him this question, and he said, um, he was like, I, you can take an extra million dollars, take million dollars of my salary, and we can pay the players. And it was at that moment, I realized that there's always money to pay the players. It just got to come out of coaches' salaries, right? Like this, you know, there's a whole conversation about that, right? Because we work on the same institute. Like I tell people all the time, I work on the same campus as the football coach. Uh, and I may teach like this year between my class of a hundred level with 300. I may teach 300 plus students. He's got a hundred plus football players. I make, I do very well as a professor. I don't do as well as he will, and he will go less than he will win less than half of his games this year. Right, right, right. Like it's just like you know, it's just you know that's the thing. And we work on the same campus. We've got you know we have to wear the same University of Kentucky stuff. So I think there's some something about that, right? So there's money in the system, and I think that you know we have to encourage and give these coaches power. I think black coaches are often undermined because they have such there's such small positioning that they're you know like they don't get a lot of opportunity. So if they say something controversial like that, that may that may close a number of doors in particular kinds of ways. So Steve Spurrier can say that Randy Etzel never won a lot of games, but he was always like you know kids should be paid, and I always appreciated that that part of his personality. Uh, coach Cal, who's the basketball coach here at the University of Kentucky, Coach Calipari, always says, 
when a kid is thinking about coming back to school, he says, um, you should go pro because if you stay an extra year, you make me money uh, instead of making your family money. He thinks when a kid is ready to go, he pushes them out the door and says that they should go pro, especially if they're going to be in the first round. And I think that's an honest, as a level of honesty there that I think uh, that, that one can also observe. So I see the answer to your question of how we get this messy is it requires a multi-tiered approach. One is we got to find coaches both publicly and or privately, black, hopefully black coaches who are going to take this stand to say, look, how do we make this a more equitable and just system? We know it's still like, that's not going to fix CTE. That's not going to fix the injuries. That's not going to fix the educational questions, et cetera. But how can we make this a whole, a, a, a more just and equitable system in terms of compensation for these student athletes, right? And so taking that position, that's one. Two, we need a black coach to be actually probably a couple of black coaches to be the most powerful coaches in the business. Like that's the only way. And yeah. so, so when, when, as long as Dabo Sweeney and Nick Saban and, you know, a handful of other coaches are white coaches are the most powerful coaches in the, in the system, they have all the sway uh, over the way, the way the nation thinks about these kinds of issues. So let's use a hypothetical and say that Loxley and Franklin are the two most powerful coaches in the country and all the five-star recruits that are going to Ohio State or Clemson or any other school are, are basically battling out in this, you know, three-hour distance between one another, right, uh, between College Park and State College, right? And and these and things I think are so dumb of these towns when you say them next to each other. <laughs> but if, if if all the five, if all the talent is there, they can make the claim because they're the most like if you're the most powerful coach and you've got all the best players, you can make the claim that like, look, these kids should be play, get paid. Because one, you're still open, all your assistants are getting the jobs now, like the way Nick Saban assistants get jobs, right? Or Dabo's assistants are gonna get jobs. Like you open up the entire network and people are gonna defer to you in a way because you have been so good on the field and so you know part of it is and we you know this is probably too much uh to ask of high school students and high school parents but it's it's really on talented black parents to be honest like that they have to be they have to intervene into this question about where to send their child um and if they are making the decision to send their kids to to schools where the coach is, is clearly paternalistic and clearly um, self-serving and not in the best interest of not only their professional athletic development, but also their, their personal development, especially around these issues of race and opportunity, then you are contributing to a system that may individually benefit you while you're playing, but it means that you can't, you know, the, the path to be a coach, the path to be, you know, offensive coordinator, the path to be an athletic director are not the same for you as it would be for the white star quarterback. Trevor Lawrence can be, he'll, he could get hurt two years from now and be the head coach, the offensive coordinator at, you know, 25 right. at Clemson or something, right? Like this is like, that's the way it's going to work. Whereas Justin Fields, that's not going to happen just to be perfectly honest, right? And, and so, you know, it's a multi-tiered system in which these coaches have to accumulate power and there's risk in that because there's always risk when co these football coaches have too much power. 
but then they have to be willing to use their power to challenge the very system um, that under could undermine their own power situation. And, and that requires talent and that requires, I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces. And, I mean, and that's a tale as old as time, right? Like right. I think about, you know, the historical work that you do. And when we talk about these black institutions that had to at once strengthen them, but knowing that strengthening their institution was also, you know, building the foundation for its destruction, you know? Right. And then the other thing that's this tale as old as time, even as I'm listening to myself ask you this question and you answer it, it's like, damn, just like we've seen this week electorally, like black people just have to keep saving everybody from themselves like why do they have to reform an entire system that they're barely a part of you know what I mean that they're trying to work up but like uh, you know again tales of this time is it is there's nothing fair or just about it right but I think that if uh I, you know I'm of the full belief that you know I, I, I work in the SEC now and 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 college sports are going to be here to stay in some form or fashion especially you know college football um and the way I look for the, the, the path forward, I think, is really figuring out a way for these student athletes to be compensated. I think one is that. I think two, we should really have a, a robust conversation about giving college football players the opportunity to go to go to the NFL at some earlier point uh, to like if we're not going to pay them in college, like there's no use keeping them for, you know, mandatory three years. I think there's a really interesting kind of question there. I mean, that requires a, like a two league solution. Um, and so it is not, it's not an easy answer. And I think that we, you know, I, I, I you know, I like, I, you know, every year, uh, cause I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan every year. I hope the best players in college football end up at H uh, either HBCUs or black. I, I want to see Mel Tucker or Franklin or Loxley, preferably Loxley um, or David Shaw, or, it, you know, get the, the number one recruiting class in the country and be like, have all this excitement around their program and have, you know, a, a class of, you know, these top young, mostly African-American men who are going to lead their coach to this. Cause they still haven't had this question of a coach winning a national title, right? Like to me, that's the messaging that I want. Uh, and I want someone to be, you know, I like James Franklin. He's a, uh, I describe him as, as as slick. As probably I don't know if these, but he's polished and he says the right things. Loxley is a, a kind of a grinder. Um, you know, you've got Herm Edwards is kind of the old kind of grizzly. Him and Lovey, uh, Kevin Sumlin is like uh, you know he's like I got these great ideas but hasn't fully mastered. Dave David Shaw is like I I'm at Stanford like I don't really have I got a certain kind of guy hard nosed. I actually want I I want us to have a black coach that is um that is really good at their job but has this undeniable black charisma like i feel like we don't really have the big charismatic black coach like there's never been a black football coach like john thompson or right. nolan Mike richardson like dudes yeah. who you walk out you be like i like i don't know what that's about but i like that and i think <laughs> that like you know, and I think some of it is just the structures of college football that don't allow those guys to kind of move to, to rise to the top of a program. But I think if you ever got that person, I think this is what Jackson State going on circling around the Dion is trying to do. If you ever got to that person, that charismatic person who can be an exhorter and could get these kids in and can win. Oh, man, that that is the magic formula that could possibly get us to that. Break it up. Magic yeah. Plan. 
Hey, y'all, I just wanted to pause real fast right here to tell you about Indeed.com. Now, people have many different tempos in the world. You could be, you know, Nevada counting ballots, or you could be a small business owner who's looking to make a hire fast. And if you are the latter, then I really recommend you check out Indeed.com. It's the number one job site in the world for a reason, because it gives you full control, payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, but it also gives you powerful tools to make your search that much easier. In addition, if you use your sponsored jobs, you have three and a half times more likely a chance to result in a hire, which means you get who you need into the position that you need them in fast. So right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast, unlike Nevada. Try Indeed out right now with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. So go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions do apply. Offer is valid through December 31st. So get to it. So, you know, we're talking about football being back. And one of the things that college football (laughs) being back means is that my uncle Q is calling me again like I told y'all before it does mean that betting on college football is back as well now you know me I can't bet I don't want to go anywhere near it um especially college football betting because it's just like another way of being like look everybody else can make money off of these boys except for them but if you like to bet and you care about the spreads and you want to place, um, do a wager, again, don't bring it my way, but do go to bet online because they are going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. They have pos- they have uh, chances to wager on Gabe's friends, on totals, on coaching props. They give you so many options uh, to get your bet in if that is your thing. Uh, so head to bet online today. Take full advantage of all of the sign-up bonuses. Don't forget, if you use the promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag, you know, that will be all good things for you. So that's BLUEWIRE, all one word, BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. All right, Derek, speaking of wagers and bets, now we're not betting people, but if you had to make a prediction for the game this weekend. Oh, man, um... (laughs) So we're coming in, like you said, Maryland's one and one, Penn State's 0 and 2. Uh, the spread is huge for this. Like Penn State's really favored, but they're still going to struggle. And everybody on the team right now that's going to be have playing time this weekend is going to be young, 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 young. So I actually think it will be much tighter. So I, I, I think we're going to cover. I think we turned a coin. Like our defense is not very good. We played really, really good offensively last week. I was super excited. Um, we didn't we still gave up 44 points in a win <laughs> um so i i'll just say we'll cover i mean i'm you know i'm gonna take us we're like 25 point underdogs is that what it is i, I think like. it was 24 25 points uh, yeah I'm gonna, I'm gonna take us as we're gonna cover <laughs> yeah um, i think that's a good bet <laughs> that's, that's, I'm, I'm not quite ready to go on there and take the money line just yet <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I completely agree with you in that. I mean, I'll be looking to see if we can get our ground game going. Um, you know, I mean, set aside the Indiana game, which was a whole bunch of mess. But like Ohio State game to me was exactly how we always play Ohio State, which is like we're asleep for three quarters and then decide like, oh, yeah, there's football being played and then do this furious kind of race to the finish only to come up like five points short where you always feel like, oh, this was a blowout. And then you look at the score and you're like, oh, we were actually not that far away from the game. This is very confusing. 
Um, and so that was like a kind of quintessential Penn State game as long as I've been here um, and watching them seriously. So it'll be interesting to see what goes down this weekend if I can get myself to stomach watching. So <laughs> no, I, I said this last week. I'm very uncomfortable watching football. But yeah. I said I told my wife, I said, I said, if Maryland's gonna play, then I'm gonna want them to win. So like <laughs> this is this is just how it goes, right? Like if we I, I would prefer them not to play. Uh, because that's the, the right, I think, moral positioning, but that is not my job to determine if they right. play or not. It's above us. <laughs> uh, so it's above my pay grade. And so if they're going to play, then I'm going to root for my team to win. Yeah. Um, and so I hope we pull off the upset uh, uh, against Penn State. Uh, you know, it is hard to beat Penn State. Uh, we are not very good in this, this thing. I think we've won like three times in the last, like, ever. <laughs> something like that. Um, I'll, well, let me, can I finish with a quick story? My, yeah, first, yeah. my freshman year, we played Penn State. This is 1993. This is how I won't I tell you how old I was. <laughs> 1993, freshman year. It was parents weekend. Uh, uh, I'll never forget. We played, we were feeling good. I think we were like two and one or something. Penn State comes to town. We used to be regular rivals back in the old days and, and uh, they beat us 70 to seven. <laughs> And I thought I, you could have never told me that Kajana Carter was not going to be an NFL Hall of Famer because he must have ran for like 300 yards that day. And I will never, I, 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 every time we line up against them, I can only see the scoreboard of that game in my head. So let's just hope it's better than 70 to 7. You know, I think that that's a good goal <laughs> to have. It's been, you know, I went to Temple undergrad and, you know, our football team, oh, my mom, of course. Um, I went to Temple undergrad and our football team, uh, their season rested on if they beat Penn State or if they came close, right? Like that was it. That was it. I think it was my senior year at Temple. So like 20, 2010, 2011 ish. And they won or almost won. They won. Oh, it was the, I know exactly what happened. It was the year we finally beat them. Like the first year they were sanctioned. Yes. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and they won and they had fireworks going up everybody was doing this and I was like and this is how you know like this is just embarrassing at this part so I have to say I've enjoyed at least being on this side of many of these rivalries <laughs> for the last four years so I will be you know which is basically my way of telling you that I will be talking shit randomly <laughs> <laughs> only because that's how my com competitive you know set up but um, I'm looking forward to it um, and I appreciate you coming on and chopping up with me about this um and i'm and and yeah so everybody please check out the black athlete podcast check out derek's work follow him um you're on what's your handle something uh oh. at black star 1906 yeah y'all always have to put your damn 1906 <laughs> you earn it <laughs> yeah true yeah so hit derek up follow him um uh, thank you again for joining us on burn it all down thank you